Hey, so we've all known the phrase to be of two minds. Very commonplace phrase. Movies, books use it. Generally, it means to be split in one's views or opinions about uh, a person or a place or possibility. For example, a friend of mine is playing a gig tonight, and uh, I'm of two minds. And he goes on generally at around 11.30. And I like his band, and I like him a lot. And it's actually pretty, almost embarrassingly convenient to me. I wish it wasn't so convenient. <laughs> And so that creates the argument for, but a band going on at 11.30, probably midnight, after I teach, and I've had a, a day of mentoring, and then uh, have to wake up tomorrow morning, uh, is the other thing that I'm bearing in mind. But actually, though that's the commonplace use of the phrase of two minds, in and it denotes a sort of special situation where we can't make our minds up easily. In fact, we are all always of two minds. Each of us is always of two minds. The first mind we are invariably aware of, and that is we are conscious of our thoughts, we're conscious of our ideas, we're conscious of often our memories when they arise, which are often either in sounds or in visuals or both. So one mind is the stuff that we are aware of, that we are consciously capable of paying attention to. We can report to somebody else, which is, in other words, I can tell you that I've had such and such an idea on my mind of late, going to the show tonight, whatever. So that's a conscious idea. And our conscious thoughts and logic and narrative are very available to us because we are conscious in what's known as the left hemisphere of our brain. Of course, we have two hemispheres, and the right hemisphere is largely unconscious. So what's it up to? What's it doing while we're having all these thoughts, plans, views, and opinions? The left hemisphere seeks to achieve, achieve tasks and to figure out the meaning of things. It likes to, after an experience, come away with a message or a meaning or way to interpret what has just happened after a breakup or a, an interaction. We like to be able to talk about it and have an insight. So we're very aware of this. In fact, the narrative inner chatter thought-based mind is so uh, adept at coming up with language and constant chatter that it can make us almost wholly unaware 
of the emotional activations that are going on in our life all the time, which are the products of our right hemisphere. While our left hemisphere creates narratives and language, our right hemisphere creates emotions. It also helps with other tasks, but for this tonight's talk, I'm going to be talking about the emotional mind. It's a very significant area of study now for neuroscientists such as Ledoux, Damasio, Lieberman, Shore, at all. There's a, a lot of study of the right hemisphere and the role of emotions and how emotions help us make important decisions in our life and the roles they can play in making decisions difficult for us as well. So the emotional mind doesn't speak to us using primarily language. While it can once in a while have a thought or a memory that it withholds from awareness, generally the emotional mind speaks to us through other means, through activations of the body. For instance, if I'm frightened about something, my stomach might clench. If I am uh, feel lonely or disconnected from somebody, my chest might feel hollow. If I feel stifled or powerless, I might feel a strangling sensation at the base of my throat. If I'm angry, I might feel a tension in my forehead. So. This is what the Buddha called Vedana. And the Buddha was very interested in unconscious emotional messages. In fact, he said that they were as important for us to understand and review as our thoughts and our understandings of the world. We generally create negative emotions, stress, when we experience any kind of a rejection, abandonment, or interpersonal disappointment. And we feel positive emotions when we feel securely connected with other people. So the goal of the right hemisphere and all the emotions that it triggers is to establish secure relationships with other people where there will be no woundings or abandonments or hurt or disappointment. So we always in our life have two agendas going on. The first agenda we're generally aware of. I would like to achieve this. I would like to get a better job. I would like to write a book. I would like to get in a play. I would like to be in a relationship. I would like to Da 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 da. Meanwhile, the agenda we are largely unaware of, but is constantly creating subtle emotional signals to us, is the agenda of I want to feel securely connected to the tribe, to the people around me. This is really important. From 200,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago, human beings faced a very significant challenger, competitor, for resources. You might not be aware of it, but Neanderthals were not only bigger and stronger and had better eyesight, but they also had bigger brains than us. 
So, by all accounts, we should have been the ones who died out. But the Neanderthals' brains were all used up in processing sight and body movements, and they didn't have the big, large, twin frontal lobes that allowed us to, what we have, which allow us to connect with each other, not just through language, but through emotions, through facial expressions, tone of voice, etc. So, this ability that we have to have always two agendas, two minds, one conscious making sure that we alert each other to our plans, our movements, our goals, and another mind that's constantly evaluating how emotionally connected we feel, whether we feel that someone is attuned, taking care of us, paying attention to us, uh, keeping us in mind, is what allows us to bond so efficiently. It gives us an enormous survival advantage because whereas the Neanderthals were pretty much all acting on their own, a whole bunch of, I guess, alpha females and males, each trying to survive without paying too much attention to the tribe, we were connecting and planning and moving in synchronicity. So, some of the most meaningful events of our lives happen when we use both of our minds together in tandem. I have to admit, and not even under torture, although it probably should take torture for me to admit, that I play the banjo, and uh, when I do that, it actually requires me to use both my left and right hemispheres. The left hemisphere chooses the rhythm, the right hemisphere in this case chooses the note I pick, because the left hand is under the control of the right hemisphere and vice versa. If I paint, the left hemisphere determines the content of the painting, the image I'll paint, but the right hemisphere will control the brush stroke and how emotional each brush stroke is, whether it's thin or thick, heavy, etc. When I tell a joke, do I know any jokes? Uh, um, <laughs> how many people does it, how many people with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? Do you see my shoes? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not a very good joke, but uh, I'm trying also to uh, offend the least amount, but probably offended the most amount, because probably half of us have ADD. But, um, so the left hemisphere followed the logic, but the right hemisphere had the tension and the release that goes into the transgression, ooh, making fun of someone, etc. Uh, so, to get a joke, we have to use both hemispheres of the brain. Now, when it all works well, when we're making a big decision in life, we take into consideration not just our need to achieve and develop and accomplish something, but we also would take into consideration our need to feel securely connected and bonded to people we love who we feel supported by. Of course, 
very often that goes awry. Now I'm going to give you some examples. One of the most notorious ways that people events poor left and right hemispheric coordination is when procrastination happens. Procrastination occurs when the left hemisphere of the brain sets a task. I want to write a resume so I can get uh, I can send my resume out or I want to write a screenplay. Let's use that. That's more fun. So I want to write a screenplay. Pretty much the last thing the world needs right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to write a screenplay. With apologies. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the left hemisphere says, I want to write a screenplay, but then the, we, we stall. Every time we sit to, at the computer, we accomplish nothing. Well, I say we, I could be just talking about myself. Actually, I'm not writing a screenplay, but anyway. Uh, so you get the idea. We set a task, but then every time we sit to do it, we find ourselves on Amazon or Facebook or, uh, or idling through some foreign page on the internet that has nothing to do with writing a screenplay, and we get nothing done. So what's happening there? Well, very simply, the left hemisphere wants to accomplish a task, but the right hemisphere is associated creativity with rejection. We've all had times in the past where we've created something and it wasn't liked by other people. And so we associate often doing something creative with the feeling that it won't be good enough, we'll be rejected, and that we'll feel poorly connected to other people and essentially abandoned by other people. So even though the left hemisphere might be utterly right, that it would be a wonderful thing to do to write a screenplay, the right hemisphere has its concerns that if I do this and I send this, I complete this, that it might, like the last screenplay I wrote, might lead to some form of rejection. It might not go anywhere and I'll feel disappointment. Another example, staying in jobs that are, uh, have essentially stalled, that there's no longer any more development. The left hemisphere might say, I need to get another job. I need to get out of this job. I've got to get something that pays me better, that gives me more opportunity to grow. But the right hemisphere stalls. We don't get anything done. Every weekend, we find ourselves not putting together a resume or investigating other opportunities or doing anything about it. What's happening there? The right hemisphere views the job that we're in presently as a kind of a surrogate family. The people there, even though we just work with them, to us, to the connected emotional mind, seeing people day in and day out, to that part of us feels like this is my family. To leave would essentially be to leave my support group, a large part. So, here's another example. I was talking with somebody who uh, was feeling guilted into uh, going on a trip, a hiking trip. And on the very weekend he was going, there was all these fun things that he could be doing with his friends in the city. So the time came to leave for the hiking trip, and he got about an hour out of the city and then realized he had left his wallet back home. That was not a mistake. 
That is the working of the right hemisphere saying, I don't want to go. I want to stay right here. When we forget our keys, when there's something that we have to go to that we really don't want to, when we leave our wallet or our purse or whatever, something that we can't leave home without, it is one part of the mind saying, you haven't been paying attention to me. I don't want to do this. The less we listen to the emotional mind, and people can become so up in their heads and so driven and overscheduled, which is a tactic the left hemisphere does to make sure that we won't have to be aware of those pesky emotions getting in our way and sending us signals. I get the crickets now. Um, uh, when we stop to pay when we stop paying attention to our emotional signals, what the right hemisphere is telling us, what happens is uh, the right hemisphere is forced to take ex increasingly drastic measures to get our attention. At first, the, the measures can be something along the lines of uh, procrastination, avoidance, not booking a bus ticket or plane ticket, not being able to pay attention because the right hemisphere also controls where we focus our attention often. But eventually, it can cause insomnia. It can cause uh, panic. It can cause outright uh, anxiety. In cases of people in recovery, if they don't listen to their emotional minds and don't know how to become aware of the body, it can lead to relapses. Very often, the emotional mind will go to any lengths to have its fear of disconnection or rejection or abandonment be known. It will try to be heard. But because we often live in such busy, overscheduled lives where we don't stop and check in to the messages that are being sent, we can often be unaware. So uh, tonight's talk is in no way should be viewed along the lines of self-improvement, by the way. Because self-improvement is just another guise of the left hemisphere trying to get rid of the right hemisphere. If you look at a lot of self-help books, their agenda is how can we get rid of these things that get in the way of change, growth, and the underlying agenda is how can we get rid of our emotional activations. The way forward is not to push through or man up, whatever that means, or force our way through. The way through is to integrate, to learn how to listen to the emotional concerns, pay them heed, assure them, and then integrate them into our lives so that we can get the things we want to accomplish done without running ramp, uh, roughshod over the fears, worries, sadness, anxiety of abandonment or rejection that might be dwelling in the unconscious mind. So the, the desire to change or become different doesn't solve the problem. The, the desire to integrate 
is what solves the dilemma. Not to become different, not to be more driven, but to actually become more self-aware. The Buddha talked about this in his suttas on Vedana. He talks about the importance of being aware of all the messages that are being sent via the body, which is why he places awareness of Vedana, emotional messages in the body, as something to be done before we pay attention to our thoughts, views, and opinions, to counteract the imbalance. So, how do we do this? The first is, and the practice is also known in Buddhist lore as Yoniso Manasikara. You don't have to remember that. The first thing is when we find ourselves stalling, uh, procrastinating, avoiding something like uh, perhaps social events, to not view this as there being something wrong with me at all. To not view this state as an inadequacy or a mistake or an idea that I have to become more diligent or have to try harder. That's not what's needed. The first goal is to learn how to read what emotion is present that's seeking our attention. What is the emotional concern, the unconscious concern, that's getting, that's stalling? So, one way to do this is in our day-to-day life, just becoming more aware of emotions as they arise in the body. If you find yourself in life going, becoming really agitated at one point, just take a note. How does that express itself in my body? Not just in my mind, but in my body. If you find yourself frightened about something, take a moment to note how fear registers in your body. If you find yourself frustrated or sad or remorseful or lonely, note all of the physical sensations. This is important because when you're in procrastination or avoidance or stalling, or not getting something done, if we stop and simply know what's activated in the body, we can find very quickly through emotional body mapping just what the message is being sent to us. Now, there's another way we can do it as well. The process of when we have gone through a really frustration, frustrating procrastination where we really needed to get something done but we instead spent hours distracting ourselves with Netflix or uh, I read the Manchester Guardian as a way to not do the writing I sometimes set myself out to do, is to, after that period set, visualize the task that we've set ourselves and then see what arises in the body. Generally, again, fear is very often felt in the stomach, loneliness, disconnection, abandonment in the chest. So you can simply visualize the task that you've been avoiding and see what is activated. You can also maybe ask what needs to be felt. Now, once we do this, then we move fully into Yonisa Manasikara, which means knowing the (coughs) emotional concern. For instance, to use an example of writing the screenplay, 
being noting that, oh, there's a tightness in my chest whenever I think about writing that screenplay. That means there's a fear of abandonment associated with doing something creative. Then what I can do is remind myself that I'm going to take that into account. I'm going to connect myself with people that are very supportive. I'm going to show the screenplay first to people who are more likely to be not so critical and harsh, but will be supportive. If I'm stuck trying to get a better job, and I look and investigate that, and I find my stomach is tight, and I ask, what is what needs to be felt? And I see that the stalling from uh, changing work has to do with letting go of my connections with the people at my old job, then what I can do is take that into account and promise myself before I start sending around resumes that I'm going to stay deeply connected again with people and find a new support group so that if I do leave this job, I won't suddenly find myself with a deficit of empathetic friendships in my life. So each time I find myself not moving forward, I investigate what's the underlying concern, what's the real fear. Sometimes just talking about it, I might become aware of it. And then I reassure that part of the mind that I will take its needs into consideration. Other ways we can do this that are very useful are, one, to set very, very incremental, attainable goals. One of the ways we set ourselves up to make, um, to make avoidance stronger and procrastination stronger in our life is we set large goals. Like, today I'm going to write the first 15 pages of my screenplay. Or, today I'm going to send out 30 resumes. Or, today I'm going to, I'm just going to start exercising today. And I'm going to do five miles. Um, Jogging. I should have indicated that. Uh, so, setting big goals is the left hemisphere's way of completely disregarding the emotional mind. The emotional mind is always frightened of change and anything that might jeopardize life with our connections the way it is. So, the first thing to do is to set much smaller goals to refuse to beat up on ourselves if we don't attain even those goals. And whatever we do, create a sense of self-appreciation and reward. Now, we don't have to reward ourselves with buying crack and smoking <laughs> it up. <laughs> Just seeing it your way. But, or, you know, eating, uh, eating a bag of Oreo cookies. Self-reward can simply be going, sitting outside, doing something, or connecting with an, a friend, or doing something that we know our emotional mind finds soothing and pacifying. Generally, that will involve sensations that are soothing, like a beach, or sitting in a park, or connecting with somebody who's supportive, or uh, reflecting on times when we felt... Uh, securely uh, befriended with people. So, reward, incremental goals, 
reassuring the emotional mind, listening to the messages that are being sent to us through the body, not overscheduling ourselves, not viewing procrastination or any of these states as there's something wrong with me, but instead bringing a mind that is based in investigation, not judgment. These are the tools that allow us to transform the way we work with that experience. So, hope there was something of value tonight. I thank you for listening. And nice seat is one that simply has uh, a good line between an upright head that's nicely balanced over the shoulders and if you continue it down to the hips and balance makes it so that we don't have to engage the muscles. So muscle engagement leads to stress, it's distracting, it requires a lot of energy, it creates aches, and so a simple way is just to try to get a nice upright state, but then from that state, relax. Just truly relax into this moment, letting go of any tendency to try to present in any way to the world around you. And closing the eyes, which is the way that we signal to the mind that we're going to become internally focused. Much of our lives we walk around maybe 90% externally aware and 10% internally aware. And uh, given that, that focus on the computer and the interpersonal events and the events of the world. There's a lot of important things, of course, happening outside, but it leads to a wholesale lack of awareness of the breath, the body, the mood we're in. And all of those are tools that can help us find peace of mind. So what we're, we're shifting now to a more 80 or 90 percent internal awareness, rebalancing the mind. A nice way to start a meditation is by taking a few breaths where we relax. the body using the breath. So take a long, smooth in-breath through the nose and lift up your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears, if you like to, you don't have to. But And then hold the in-breath and as you breathe out through the mouth, just let the shoulders fall away from the ears. And if it feels right for you, pull the shoulders slightly back so that you open up the chest. 
Now the second breath, pulling in the belly like you're trying to take two inches off your waistline, holding it in, and then as you breathe out through your mouth, go into a nice soft round belly. And then for the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face, tightening the fists, the buttocks, the leg muscles, the arms, everything gets tight, and then as you breathe out, soften everything. And now allow your breath to come into what feels like a really natural rhythm. So I'm going to give the instructions for a very basic two-part meditation. One, the first part, concentration. The second part, insight. So for the first part, choose what's called an anchor. An anchor being a recurring set of sensations that you can try to keep in mind. So, obviously, perhaps the most well-known anchor for concentration is the breath. Noting the sensations of inhalation and exhalation. And if you use this as an anchor, perhaps the best approach for people who are just entering meditation practice, or even for people who've been around it for a long time, is to start out the meditation by counting the breaths. One on the in-breath, two on the out. Three on the in-breath, mm -hmm. four on the out, five on the in-breath, and then counting down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting from one to five, back down, with one, three, and five always on the in-breath. As the mind quiets down and there are fewer thoughts trying to <coughs> distract you, you can, of course, experiment with letting go of counting entirely so that we're just with the sensation of the breath. If your mind's anxious, try to extend the out-breath. If your mind's tired, hold the in-breath as long as you can before releasing it. Now, for those who don't like to work with the breath, which is fine, you can simply find a meta-phrase, a phrase denoting an aspiration for peace and kindness. You could hold an image of yourself and use any lines that feel appropriate. For example, may I feel peaceful, may I feel safe, or I love you, keep going, or I care about you, I'll take care of you. And as you repeat the phrases, repeat them more often if the mind is busy with thoughts, and repeat the phrase less frequently as the mind begins to quiet. A third possibility is simply holding in mind a very static image, 
a place you feel safe, a shape or color. The Buddha called this a nimitta, mental object used for meditation. Some people use the lights flickering behind the eyelids. So we'll spend a period of time in silence. If you find yourself losing track of your meditation object, your anchor, try not to become frustrated or judgmental or self-critical. That doesn't accomplish anything. In fact, it makes it more difficult to find peace. Instead, see if you can feel good that you've noticed that the mind has wandered and just really patiently bring it back. If nothing else, developing generosity and patience in your meditation is really skillful in and of itself.
So at this point, you can continue with the concentration practice, or you can let go of your anchor and just allow the mind to, as it were, drift in the present moment, drifting from all the different sensations that are available to it, feelings in the body, awareness of moods, awareness of the breath, contact sensations with the ground, the occasional sound that will make itself known. So once in a while a thought will arise in the mind, it's a little bit like an internal TV, when a thought switches on, much like a television set being turned on in a room, it's difficult to look away. It tends to appropriate our awareness. So for the purposes of insight, it's useful when a thought arises rather than to push it away or to climb inside it and lose awareness of the breath and body and mood and all these sensations of the present moment, it's good to simply note, oh, there's a thought about this or that, and then investigate how this thought changes the breath, how does it change the body. And very often there'll be an emotional reaction to the thought. The emotional reaction will be felt largely in the body. If it's a thought that causes fear, you might feel your stomach tighten. If it's a thought that triggers loneliness, you might feel your chest feel either constricted or hollow. If it's a thought that triggers anger, you might feel the forehead tighten, the muscles in the top of the arm. So you can use awareness of thoughts to learn how emotions express themselves through the body. This is important. If you relax the body, then the thought will become less powerful. There are times in life when our thoughts are obsessive. So using the body, you can learn how to become less vulnerable to obsessive thought, repetitive thought.
So we're going to begin a very gradual transition from the 90% internal awareness and 10% external to something more along the lines of 50% of the mind aware of the world outside of us and 50% of our awareness staying cognizant of the body, the breath, and our internal moods. Of course, that's just a target. Sometimes during the night you'll find that your mind has become almost entirely externally aware. And simply bring it back more into balance. So one way we can do this is when it does come time to open up the eyes, 
do it very, very gradually, taking the entire sound, length of the sound that the bowl ringing will make, to very slowly, gradually open up the eyes. If you simply quickly open your eyes and look around, what will happen is you'll lose most of the internal awareness you've developed. Your mind will simply become attached again to the world outside. So we make it a very gradual transition, always keeping in mind to maintain mindful awareness of the breath, body, moods, as well as awareness of what's going on around us. We'll find that the mind can be very relaxed in this state. Also remembering that your practice is blameless, so no matter whether your meditation was easy or difficult, having a meditation practice not only allows you to develop unconditional serenity down the line, not dependent upon using up the world's resources, exploiting or harming others, but it's a blameless practice. It doesn't cause addiction, harmfulness. When we have a practice in our life, we're far more likely to be emotionally attuned and far more likely to be considerate of others. So it's a practice not just to our benefit, but to the benefit of all beings.